We're going to be looking in the Gospel of Mark today. I began this series two weeks ago, and uh, we're back to it this morning. Uh, Gospel truth, I called it, for chaotic times. And this morning, why your baptism matters. Mark chapter 1 and verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Gospel truth for chaotic times. In our first message, I explained to you a little bit about the historical setting of the Gospel of Mark and the chaotic times that were brewing in his world and how that he addressed this gospel primarily to the people at Rome and all of the upheaval, all the things that were already happening then and in his day. And uh, we drew some parallels a little bit along the way to the chaotic times in which we are living today as we look around in our world situation, uh, outside our Christian faith. Uh, there is a lot of chaotic situations or are a lot of chaotic situations that are developing in our world. In fact, it would be Hard to find a place that we could look at where everything seemed to be going uh, just as it should be going. There's a lot of chaos and it seems to be growing uh, in our culture today. Today, before we look at the baptism of Jesus and discuss the issue of why our baptism matters, I want to talk a little bit more about this growing chaos, the gospel truth for chaotic times. But where we saw it in the historical and cultural setting before, we want to look inside the Christian faith and see how the chaos is growing, not only without in the culture, but within, within the realm of Christianity. One of the things that made for the chaotic times in Paul's day was defined for us very well in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. Paul said, but I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit than you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. The simplicity... That was in Christ. Paul was warning them because there were a lot of spiritual leaders around who were already going after many, many new ideas. Uh, they claimed to have new revelation, deeper understanding of biblical truth. But the fact of the matter was these people were not preaching the same Jesus that uh, Paul and the apostles were preaching. Their message had drifted away from the solid ground of who Jesus is and what he has done. Because it wasn't the truth about Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit wasn't blessing it. So whatever they were getting out of it wasn't coming from the Spirit at all. It was coming from some other source. It had a different kind of spiritual power. It was a different message about a different Jesus. And it was moving them toward a different gospel. Now be careful as you look in this passage. And notice that Paul was not saying to the people at Corinth that he was concerned that they might embrace that false gospel or this false understanding of Jesus. What he was concerned about was that they knew that these people with their new revelations and new ideas 
had some wrong things about Jesus. They knew that they had things wrong about the gospel. And though, even though they knew this, they were tolerating them because they liked their new ideas and their innovative teachings. And so they were willing to tolerate, put up with, he says, these people, knowing that they were off on a lot of things, dangerously off. So that they might enjoy the good things of the novel teachings that they offered. Uh, If that was a problem in Paul's day, and it was, and that's very clear in 2 Corinthians, uh, this is a problem that is exploding in our culture today. Mark Twain, back in the 1800s, was fond of saying that a lie can run around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, But if it was true in Mark Twain's day, just imagine how true it is today. Because uh, everything is so wide open and you can get everything from all sorts of different sources. It's all out there and all kinds of new ideas and all kinds of new teachings. And they're spreading and spreading rapidly in our world. And the truth is a lot of God's people listen to these folks. They know they're wrong. They know they're wrong about... Uh, salvation They know they're wrong sometimes about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But, oh, they've got some good insight on this subject. I, I, I can just get this and forget about all this others. But notice Paul was warning them, these guys are going to draw you away from the simplicity that is in Christ. You see, in the search for new insight and new ideas and new revelation and new understanding draws us away so that while there's uh, an expectation, I think, on our part that we'll face opposition from the culture, uh, maybe there's not so much anticipation that we'd get corruption from within the Christian faith, but that's what's happening. This isn't a new problem. It was surfacing in the first century. It's exploding in our world today. The true standard then is found in that glorious expression the simplicity that is in Christ. This last week I was listening to a message on YouTube and for some reason I was drawn to that little sidebar over on the side and maybe you've never watched YouTube so you don't know what I'm I'm talking about. There's just this little link thing over there. And there was for some unknown reason there was a video being advertised there of a guy who was going scuba diving for gold. Now I'm not a scuba diver and I'm not a gold digger either. But for whatever reason, that caught my attention. And you know what I did? I clicked on it. I didn't know why. I still don't know why. But it was fascinating to watch those guys because they were going down in this stream and they had their scuba gear. Their idea was they were going to be able to get down where nobody had ever panned for gold before. Obviously, that creek never goes dry. (laughs) I mean, that's just what I was thinking. Uh, But... uh, Uh, you know, there they were going down in the deep and they were getting down to the bedrock, they called it. And and they were walking around and driving around, getting all the gravel around, getting down into the cracks of the bedrock. So they'd gone down deep. They'd gone as far as they could go. They were down to the bedrock and in the very cracks then of the bedrock, they'd gone deep and deep and deep. And sure enough, they found some gold. (laughs) Not much, a little handful, but, but they found some gold down there. Uh, after I watched that and I heard them thinking about the bedrock, I understood maybe why I had clicked on that, why it got my attention the way it did. 
Because you see, when we start looking deep into the Word of God, those aren't hurt, they'll be fine. I dropped my glasses in case y'all didn't see it. Uh, When we start going deep into the Word of God, and we're going to look down deep, and maybe we're going to go down as deep as we can go. We're going to get to the bedrock of Scripture, and we want to find gold there. You know what we're going to find? We're going to find the simplicity that's in Christ. That's what's there. Because the deepest and the most profound truth of the Scriptures is wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ isn't in it, then it's not true. (laughs) That's just the truth. When you find in Jesus Christ there, you're finding the source of all wisdom and knowledge. That's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1. He said, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Notice, in whom, that's in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. You see, I'm bringing this to you today because part of the reason that the gospel of Mark was written was to confront the chaos. But the chaos wasn't just outside in the culture. There was a growing chaos within the Christian faith itself with all of these new ideas, all these new revelations. And we live in exactly that kind of world today. And so I hope that God will use this series of messages in the book of Mark to call us all back and remind us of the simplicity that is in Christ. Folks, we've only got one lifetime. That's all we've got. And let me tell you, that 70 or 80 or even 90 years or even if you're blessed 100 years that you have to study out the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done is only going to let you scratch the surface just a little bit. Oh, there's so much more there. We'll never really plumb the depths of what Paul calls the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that is wrapped up in the simplicity That is in Jesus Christ. The more we study about Jesus, the less likely that our faith is to be shipwrecked by the clever arguments from without or by new revelations from within. We need to see Jesus. And with that then, we remind ourselves then today that Jesus' ministry begins with His baptism So that we have the opportunity now to discuss why our baptism matters. Why your baptism matters. Mark is going to bring three things into our consideration in connection with the baptism of Jesus. And the first one we saw in our text, that is the matter of identification. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan and immediately coming up from the water. You've seen people baptized. They go down the water and they come up out of the water. And immediately when Jesus came up out of the water, He saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon Him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
Now, it's going to be our task as we go through the Gospel of Mark to try as much as we can to just stick with the things that Mark tells us about. I don't want to jump over to Matthew or jump over to Luke and John and add in all of these other things because that's a harmony of the Gospels and and, and that's something else. Great books have been written about that. We're going to instead just focus in on the things that Mark was inspired to write about from his perspective, things that he wants us to notice. And the first thing that he brings to our attention is the distance. Jesus came from Nazareth all the way down to where John was baptizing in the Jordan. That's about a 70-mile trip. 70 miles. You know how he made that trip? He walked every foot of it. 70 miles that Jesus walked in order to be baptized by John in the Jordan. The passage also very clearly indicates for us the method of his baptism. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the word baptizo is the word used in this passage. That's a Greek word translated into English. It is translated as baptized. Actually, it's transliterated Uh, which is where the words of one language or the letters of one language are simply transferred over into the letters of another language, transliterated. transliterated. Had it been translated, this passage would have uh, talked about uh, John who was uh, dipping or immersing because the word baptizo means, always means to dip or to immerse. It is when something is placed into or put into something else. We're not left to wonder about what Jesus was put into or immersed into. He was immersed into the Jordan. Now that's the small river in Israel. It's not the modern country that carries the same name. Jesus was put into the water. He was baptized, immersed in the water. And then the text says he was coming up out of the water. And that's a very good thing because if you hold them under, they'll drown. I thought that was kind of funny. I'll miss it. They'd come up, put him under the water, come up out of the water. Um, When he came up out of the water, the Bible says, he saw the heavens parting or opening. One translation had that. He saw the heavens ripped open because that represents the violence that Mark used in this text. This wasn't just a little passive uh, kind of opening up. No, just the heavens just opened up, burst open, rent open. And Jesus was looking straight into heaven. He saw then the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and that was a sign of the Messiah. And then from the open heavens into which he was looking came the voice of the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' baptism happened in a public place. It's a well-traveled place. It was at a very public time, so that his baptism was a matter of identification We saw previously that Jesus identified with us by being baptized of John who baptized with the baptism of repentance. And though Jesus had no sin to repent of, he was identifying with us in his baptism. But now we see also that he was identified by the Father. And that speaks to us of the purpose of baptism. So we see then its importance. Jesus walked 70 miles to get baptized. We see its method. He was baptized by immersion in water. And then its purpose. He was baptized and it identified him as the Son of God. This is my beloved Son. 
We pointed out many times, and I say it again today, that Jesus was not baptized in order to become the Son of God. He was baptized because He was the Son of God. And that gives to us the purpose of baptism. It is not in order to become a believer, but because we are a believer in Christ. And because we are a believer in Christ, then we follow Jesus in baptism. It does the same thing for us. Jesus was identified as being the Son of God. And when we are baptized, it identifies us with Jesus Christ and His death and burial and resurrection. We also see the commendation, with whom I am well pleased. Isn't that a great passage? I can look right here in this passage and I can tell you today, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you were baptized by immersion upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, then that baptism was pleasing unto the Father. The Father's pleased. Just as He was pleased with what Jesus did, He is pleased with what we do when we are baptized as a believer. I must also say to you today that one of the most divisive elements in the Christian faith is the matter of baptism. How are you baptized? By immersion or by sprinkling? When are you baptized? As an infant or as a believer? Does baptism save us? Is it a sacrament which means it is effective for our salvation? All of those questions are answered if you look at Jesus' baptism. Jesus was baptized by immersion. Jesus was baptized... Uh, as an adult, he was baptized and as a profession of who he was and identified then as being the Son of God, uh, not in order to become the Son of God. Certainly baptism would assume a fuller role after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We, we know these things. Uh, what is amazing to me, though, is to see how many churches today, because of the divisive nature of baptism, are just declaring it to be a non-essential. And, and that's their way of saying that really it doesn't matter what you believe on it. We'll just, uh, whatever you think is, is fine. If you're okay with it, then we'll be okay with it. They do this in the name of being more inclusive rather than exclusive. More inviting of others rather than making a strong stand on what the Bible says. But I'm going to be honest with you today and always will be. I cannot look at this passage in Mark chapter 1 and see anything non-essential about baptism. That's not what I see. What I see is that baptism is important. That your baptism identifies you with Jesus Christ. And that it is well-pleasing to God when you're baptized the way that Jesus was. That's his identification then that what baptism does for us, identifies us with Jesus Christ. The second thing that I want us to see is the matter of his temptation. Verse 12, immediately, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beast and the angels ministered to him. Now there's a lot more information in the other gospel accounts. I'll remind you of that again. But Mark places emphasis on how the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness. What does drove him mean? It means about the same thing it means today. When you drive your car, 
uh, when you, uh, if you drive a herd of cattle, it's the same kind of thing. And it gives us a great time to ask the question, how much of your life, how much of my life is being driven by the Holy Spirit of God? He was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. We might be inclined to give the devil entirely too much credit in this situation than he deserves because this whole thing was set up by the Holy Spirit of God after his baptism. And Mark draws attention to that. Though other events could have been considered, we know that from the gospel accounts. Though other things may have happened, we know that from the gospel accounts. What Mark is talking about and drawing emphasis on is the fact that Jesus was driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness for a time of testing. Many times in our world, we see people make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and identify with Him in baptism, and then we never see Him again. That happens way too often. We might not see Him again for years. I want you to understand today that Mark has drawn attention to the fact that your baptism is going to lead to opposition from the enemy. There's two things that he draws attention to. Number one, he tells us baptism pleases God. And number two, baptism fires up the enemy. See, most of the people who are baptized today are baptized when they're very young. They've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Their faith is young. They're just getting started out in their understanding of who they are in Christ and what Christ has done for them. But when they go through the waters of baptism, they've made a public declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ. They're excited. And maybe you remember how it was when you were first saved, when you were getting baptized. And all oh, you just fired up the phone, maybe if you had a phone. <laughs> Or you were calling around, talking to everybody at school. You couldn't wait to tell people about what had happened to you. You couldn't wait to tell them about your baptism. I've been saved. I'm going to be baptized. Man, he was so excited. But you know what? It wasn't long until somebody was raining on your parade. And in fact, it may have been very quickly that somebody was ridiculing you and mocking you for what you believed, what you've done. You see... We expect our life to be all different after we get baptized. And it is. We've identified ourselves with Jesus Christ. But maybe you aren't factoring in the other side, the enemy's side. And how that he and all of his workers are going to be coming after you. Mark described three things. The devil tempted him for 40 days. He was surrounded by wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Out in the wild, out in the wilderness, without... Any weapons is a dangerous place to be. And I understand this is the Son of God. And, and certainly the carnivores and the, the critters that were out there were no threat to Him. Uh, I, I understand that. But what Mark has identified for us was just the overall scary situation in which Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was out there in the dark. Have you ever been out in the dark surrounded by wild animals? Uh, maybe you haven't been. Uh, I have been. Uh, do you know what your biggest uh, enemy is in that situation? Your own mind, your imagination. It magnifies everything you hear, every sound that you hear. I mean, it can be a squirrel over there scratching around the leaves and it will convince yourself it's a saber-toothed tiger coming after you. 
I mean, it's crazy how the darkness just magnifies all of that. But listen, not only were there physical threats, and that's what Mark is telling us, Jesus was driven out into the wilderness area and surrounded by wild animals, uh, which anybody who reads that then and now should feel a little bit of the trepidation of that statement. But then there was more at work because for 40 days and nights, he would face the relentless pressure of the devil himself so not only were there real things that were wild things that were a threat to them him in that situation but there was a spiritual threat as well i tell you what we can identify with this a little bit in our world today (laughs) there's a lot of wild people out there they've gone wild and they're dangerous it's a dangerous world we live in And as if there wasn't enough, there's the physical danger of the wildness. But then there's people, they they want us to go wild with them. And then there's the enemy, the spiritual enemy that is ratcheting itself up and coming against us more and more. But aren't you glad that in that time of wildness and in that time of spiritual darkness, there was something else going on? The angels of God were ministering to him. I'm glad to be able to tell you today that the same angels of God are still ministering to you. The angels of God were watching over him. We know that. The same angels of God are watching over you too. And so Mark mentions in these three great things that were happening out there. Bringing him into that time of trial. Simon Peter would speak of the trial of your faith in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 being of much more precious than gold that perishes. I like the way the ESV translates that verse. It talks about the tested genuineness of your faith. The tested genuineness of your faith. Peter makes a comparison between gold and how it was tested in ancient times and and how our faith is tested. Uh, Gold was frequently counterfeited then and now, but they had a a simple test that they used in Bible times. And that test was generally performed with acid, some type of acid that was put on gold. And you know when acid was put on gold, do you know what it did to the gold? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. (laughs) You put the acid on the gold, and the gold just sat there. It was not affected. But if you put acid on something that was said to be gold and it wasn't gold, it would turn it black. In fact, if you do a Google search about testing ancient gold, they'll tell you to use white vinegar uh, that it'll work. I I don't know if it'll work or not. I don't have any counterfeit gold around that I know of. And If I do have one, I'd rather stay in ignorance, to be honest with you. (laughs) But that's the, the terminology, the acid test, the acid test. Now don't miss what Simon Peter is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 because he talks about there, there's something much more precious than gold. And you know what that is? That's our faith. And if it's important for your gold to be tested, and it was, then it's even more important that your faith be tested. And when your faith is put to the test and your faith stands up to the test, how does it stand up to it? It's not affected. When the world throws everything at you that it has, but your faith in Jesus is still there, 
When you listen to all the arguments from all the different sources that are out there to try to contradict your faith and and try to challenge your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but your faith is still there when all the circumstances and situations that can come into our life are thrown at us because life brings a whole lot of tests to us and they don't go away. The tests come stronger and they get more and more frequent as we get older. And when life begins to test us in, what does it do to our faith? Nothing. Our faith is still there. I still believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I still believe in that old rugged cross. I know that heaven is my home. I know that Jesus Christ is there. My faith is solid and strong. Nothing's happened to my faith. But it's important then for that faith to be put to the test. Adrian Rogers said a faith that hasn't been tested can't be trusted. It's a good good thing to say. Gold needs to be tested. And it's a great thing then when gold passes the test. And we know then that what we have is genuine and real. Your faith's been tested. That's not incidental. It's not accidental. It happens. But when your faith is still there, when your faith comes through the test and it's still there, then you know that faith is genuine or reliable. The devil hopes to overthrow your faith, to catch it early and stop it in its tracks, but if the devil can overthrow your faith, there is a strong likelihood that your faith isn't genuine. Because the real deal isn't affected by the trial at all. So there's identification in baptism. We take a public stand for Jesus Christ. We identify with Him. There is also then temptation. Identification brings temptation that comes after baptism. There's one more thing. We're almost done. It's only going to take a moment or two. And that is the proclamation. That's the very next thing that, that John brings up, or John Mark. Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee. Now again, a lot of things have happened, but Mark's not talking about those things. He's not talking about a, a detailed chronological discussion of everything that Jesus did. That's not what he's bringing up some things and he's tying them together for us to notice. So Jesus was baptized immediately then. He went and was testing. So there was identification in baptism, temptation. Now there's proclamation. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That order is not coincidental. Jesus began his ministry by publicly identifying himself as the son of God. Going then through the testing, the trying of his faith. And then after that, after that he was driven in the wilderness, he comes then with the proclamation. The testing came before the testimony. And so a couple of quick things for us today about this. Number one, it is not a sin to be tested. Jesus was tested. It's not a... A sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. But of course, Jesus won the victory. Complete and total victory. He overcame 100%. But not everybody does. 
The same Simon Peter who wrote about the trying of our faith, the testing of our faith being of much more value than of gold that perishes. That same Simon Peter faced the test. And by any measure, he failed the test. But now notice this, his faith did not fail. When Jesus predicted his time of testing and predicted even that he was going to fail, he said to Simon Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And so we need to understand Simon Peter failed, but his faith didn't fail. That same Simon Peter that cowered before that little girl uh, and denied Jesus not one time, not twice, but three times, just a few weeks later, was standing up before the whole city of Jerusalem, roaring like a lion. This same Jesus who you crucified, God has raised him from the dead, and God has made this same Jesus in, both Lord and Christ. There he is, roaring like a lion. Why? His faith had been tried. And even though he had failed, listen, his faith didn't fail. He still believed. And he came out of it then knowing that his faith was genuine. And that compels us just knowing that we've got the real thing. Knowing that our faith is real then compels us to share it with others what happened with Jesus and Mark puts these things together for a reason that's what happened to Simon Peter as well baptism identifies us with Christ testing validates or shows the genuineness of our faith then we go forth with a powerful proclamation as the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he's going to do compels us, drives us to witness to Him and who He is. We live in a world of growing chaos and growing darkness, both spiritual, political, physical, any way you want to put it together. (laughs) The chaos is growing. But we've got something to bring to the chaos, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, the world needs it. But you and I need it too. We need to know that our faith is genuine. That our tested, genuine faith, it is real. I know it's real because it went through the test. And it has been declared to be true and valid. I'm not sure who all of the USDA inspectors are, but I'm glad when I go down and buy some steak or ground beef or chicken that there's some inspectors been out there. They've done their job, and we know it because this has been stamped. I know it's safe to eat. I mean, we find those things on just about everything. Our clothes have them. Our shoes have them. It's been inspected by so-and-so. But you know, it doesn't take us very long in life to know that some of those inspectors uh, didn't get their job done. 
But I want you to know, folk, our, the testing of our faith and that declares it to be genuine, it gets the job done. When our faith takes everything this world and life has to throw out of it, and our faith is still genuine. Even though we failed, our faith still stands. Even though we might have messed up, yet our, our faith is still there. And that, what that means is that our failure doesn't get the last word. This passage is a great, great testament to how God takes our tests. Even Jesus was tested and uses it to compel our witness. Let me ask you today, have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you followed Him in baptism? Have you experienced a test? course you have maybe you passed some of them maybe you failed others the very fact that you're still here today as a believer in Christ tells me and should tell you that your faith is real and valid and trustworthy and because it is it empowers you then to share it with others let's stand together please